welcome to today's show. My name is Glenn Deason. With me is uh, the great Alexander Mercurius. And the guest today is none other than Sergei Karaganov, uh, who has been a, a presidential advisor to both uh, Yeltsin and uh, uh, President Putin, uh, head of the Council on Foreign and Defense Policy. And for full disclosure, he was you were also my boss at the Higher School of Economics as the head of departments. So welcome, Professor Karaganov. It's uh, very good to see you again. <laughs> it's good to see you here. So uh, yesterday we celebrated, I mean, uh, after the Christmas. Uh, so uh, it is still the holiday season. So I'm congratulating on the on the uh, on the all the holidays. We have we are passing in Russia. We'll have another one on the thirteenth of December uh, of January, which is called uh, the Old New Year, Old Style. So it's not it's not ended here. We are all always celebrating. Oh, well, yeah, Merry Christmas as well. I should have opened with that. Uh, so, anyway, so the the topic of discussion today. So how. Uh, yeah, Russia has shifted from this Greater Europe Initiative to the Greater Eurasian Partnership. And um, yeah, how this is uh, not only contributing, but uh, I would argue is spearheading the construction of a new world as well. So just to define the terms, uh, Greater Europe then refers to Russia's former goal of constructing an inclusive European security architecture after the Cold War, one which would also include Russia, while Greater Eurasia is now this uh, larger construct in which uh, Russia aims to uh, develop more economic connectivity with the countries in the East instead. Um, so, uh, Professor Karagnov uh, and Alexander, perhaps we can start with origin of the current crisis that led to this collapse of the Greater Europe Initiative, which was the failure to establish a mutually acceptable post-Cold War settlement. And as you've written, Karagnov, NATO attempted to impose a new Treaty of Versailles on Russia. Uh, I was wondering if you can elaborate on what, uh, how you see what went wrong after the Cold War. Uh, is this a question? Yes. Uh, well, uh, I was sure uh, that uh, we'll come to a, a direct confrontation or to a crisis in direct confrontation since 1996, and I went on record. And that is the time when NATO started to expand. Uh, I was absolutely amazed at that time because I uh, thought that the Russian offer of being partially integrated on uh, on acceptable terms uh, was uh, so beneficial uh, to uh, the West, uh, uh, so he couldn't have rejected it, but it's rejected. And so I was afraid mm. uh, that the West uh, decided uh, to uh, uh, believe a coup, a coup de grace. Uh, and uh, uh, the worst mistake in uh, Russian foreign policy uh, was made in 1997 when we signed it because of weakness and also still, still illusions, uh, their founding act on Russian NATO, which uh, uh, Mm, uh, legitimized further NATO expansion. Uh, from uh, now on, I was uh, um, trying to avoid, uh, desperately trying to avoid, um, uh, the inevitable, uh, the showdown. 
So we could go, I mean, further. I could give you, I mean, uh, a few examples and a few milestones. Uh, but uh, it started uh, there. And uh, I'm extremely sad that I was right. Uh, I mean, 25 years ago. Uh, but mm. it is inevitable uh, march of history. Uh, could have been? Could that have been otherwise? Yes. Uh, it would have been more clever, more generous, and more thoughtful. Yeah. So the, yeah, the agreement you referred to is yeah, NATO Russia Funding Act. Uh, this was seen as um, uh, by NATO as an effort to get Russia to approve of NATO expansion. Of course, NATO had already decided uh, to to expand. Mm -hmm. uh, what, what, what was the motivation, or why 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 did Russia sign this? Because there's some uh, comments by uh, uh, Bill Clinton was quite crude actually when he he when he looked at the agreement he he more or less said well so this means uh, we can uh, uh, we have no commitments to Russia whatsoever and if we wake up tomorrow and change our mind and uh, want to ignore these agreements with Russia we can do so so um, what 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 made Russia sign these agreements given that. Uh, uh no, well, there were well, there were many reasons, but one was uh, I mean tremendous economic weakness and dependence on uh, Western funds and Western markets, uh, and mm -hmm. uh, um, it was probably sixty seventy five percent, depending on uh, who we would ask. Uh, Forty percent was uh, still uh, I believe that we could uh, find a, a, a fair agreement uh, with our Western neighbors. At that time, uh, these um, feelings were still uh, were still relatively strong in Russia. Uh, people like myself, but uh, there were a few. Uh, uh, most of them were out of the establishment. Uh, I believe that that is impossible. But uh, in, the, in the ruling elite, uh, the majority were still willing uh, to think that we could have a, a fair arrangement either way. Uh, mm, um, I blame myself for not being too hard and too harsh in explaining to my uh, colleagues uh, in the elite of Russia uh, how bad things would be. But I wrote that and I said that. Mm -hmm. But then uh, things uh, started to unravel and uh, the mm -hmm. crack uh, came, uh, the first crack uh, came in 1999 uh, when uh, NATO bombed uh, former Yugoslavia. Mm -hmm. uh, then it went over, uh, over and over. Mm -hmm. And by 2008, uh, it was absolutely clear that we are uh, moving towards a showdown. Mm. Can, can I say, can I just um, add to all of this? Because, of course, I, I live in Britain and I remember all of this period very much from the um, British side. And I remember going to a meeting at that time. This is a, in London University. And there was a person there. I'm not going to say who it was. I don't want to embarrass them. But he's, he actually referred to this treaty that there had been with the Russians, the NATO-Russia uh, uh, Founding Act Treaty. He said it is an unequal treaty. He was actually using the expression that, he, that is used 
by the Chinese to describe the treaties that the Western powers were imposed upon China in the 19th century. And he used that perfectly un well understanding what that phrase meant. And it was a treaty in effect to a great extent imposed on the Russians because the Russians were being presented with this, this fait accompli. NATO was going to be expanded anyway. And they were told, look, you have to accept this. If you want something, a face-saving formula, you're going to accept this treaty. The problem with unequal treaties is that they are unsustainable. It was bound sooner or later to come apart because it was something that was imposed. And it was very extraordinary that the Western political elite at that time couldn't understand this, couldn't see it for themselves. And I think that uh, Professor Karaganov has just explained about the financial dependence upon the West that existed in Russia at that time. I I'm going to say that the alarm bells began ringing in the West very loudly, much earlier than many people realized. Firstly, they began with the campaign in Chechnya in 1999. But they began to ring even more loudly when it became clear that the Russians were starting to take measures to sort out their control over their oil and gas and energy wealth in the early 2000s. And that by doing so, they would start to put their financial house in order and start to become less dependent on the West. I can, again, remember tracking coverage in Britain at the time. And it was very striking that this is the period of time in which a lot of the narratives about the Putin government, about Putin personally, about the change in Russia, about the move in Russia towards a supposedly more authoritarian anti-Western position began to take off. And I think from that moment, there was still some uncertainty in the West about how to handle this thing, this, this change in Russian policy, this reorientation in Russian policy. But I think there was also a growing hostility, and this began, as I said, in the early 2000s. Yeah, well, first of all, I mean, thank you for your analysis. I agree uh, with it 95%, I mean, 5% being, um, I mean, uh, the nuances. Mm. You're right. Um, as to the nuances, uh, Russia was dependent uh, on two levels. Uh, first, uh, it had a, a huge uh, debt accumulated uh, during Gorbachev times and uh, during early times, which was amounted to, I think, 120 billion at that time, which it had to serve. Uh, otherwise, it would be cut off uh, other uh, funds. And, uh, this was done away with uh, by Putin only at the beginning of the uh, 2000s, and it was one of his uh, aims from the beginning. Uh, so uh, the, uh, the country was hanging on a very thin rope. Uh, and the second uh, was, of course, of a different kind, and we're still suffering from it. 
Russia imposed capitalism now uh, because of uh, 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 of inadequateness of our elite, um, which is uh, mostly due, of course, uh, to communist uh, unanimity. Uh, uh, we, didn't, we didn't understand uh, the world. Now we impose capitalism without law. Uh, so all uh, monies which people earned, even decently, uh, had to be somehow defended, not by law and by system, but either by bandits or the government, which sometimes was the same, that was a source of corruption, or uh, siphoned off abroad. And so thus, uh, by uh, mid-90s uh, and uh, late 90s, we created uh, a huge comprador plus, which was not people were not anti-patriotic, but they were made anti-patriotic. They were de totally dependent. So the whole, uh, most of the Russian elite was dependent uh, on um, uh, the, the, on the money or uh, which uh, they have, they had uh, siphoned off uh, to, to the West. So it was a very co complicated uh, situation. Very few people understood uh, that at that time. Uh, but some understood, and I think uh, uh, from 1999 on, we started to get rid of that. Uh, but it was a very hard process, I, I could assure you, including, I mean, hard intellectually, politically, and physically. Uh, I was curious, um, I want to ask about a uh, article, no, sorry, um, an interview did with uh, Spiegel, I think it was back in two, 2016, because um, obviously Russia was going through this uh, economic uh, uh, crisis, which was uh, taken advantage of to some extent, uh, but also uh, it was the, um, the, uh, the, the possibility of a common security architecture, which was rejected, because first Russia, of course, wanted uh, to have the OSCE, but then that was rejected in the West. Uh, both Yeltsin and Putin suggested uh, Russia could join NATO. That was also not of interest in the West. And, of course, you had the, uh, thereafter everything from um, uh, President Medvedev suggesting a new security architecture, you know, Putin's... Uh, um, uh, so, uh, argument of an EU-Russian well, union to some extent, uh, but but at the same time, uh, uh, while the West was kind of rejecting all common uh, European architectures with Russia, uh, Russia also began to lose a bit interest in Europe in terms, uh, as you argued once, that West uh, became less and less a role model for Russia to model itself after. Um, was that mostly economic or social, cultural, moral? How how do you see? Um... Uh, Professor Dizin, first of all, I uh, read your books, uh, so um, uh, they're eliminating. Uh, so you probably you know most of the answers. Uh, so, but I will give my interpretation. Uh, uh, at, at first, there was, of course, uh, now we were dis dissatisfied with the. Uh, political security role we were assigned um, within that system. Uh, so it was a Versailles to treat in, uh, um, in soft gloves, so velvet gloves. 
Uh, but still, I mean, most of the Russian elite uh, was dependent uh, on uh, economically on the West. Uh, we were allegedly penetrated by new ideas, old ideas from the West. Uh, so most of the intellectual elite, not all, but most of the intellectual elite linked themselves to uh, uh, to the West. Uh, uh, and but still, I mean, we, there was also a notion uh, that we were turning to Europe, and Europe in the Russian public mind, or in the intellectual mind, now was uh, a land of uh, affluence, uh, land of uh, freedom, land of culture, land of beauty. Now I will know that now, of course, and I, I knew that even. At that time, that of course, uh, while all these notions are partly true, they were not every, everything. Uh, but uh, people uh, didn't want to think about that at that time. Uh, and uh, we, so uh, at first, we wanted to integrate uh, with Europe, not into Europe, because we understood that we are too sovereign, too big and too proud to become one of the European nations. Uh, or else like Britain. Yeah. But, but we were a very big Britain and uh, much more now much more powerful. Uh, so uh, uh, that was uh, uh, the, the first crack. Mm -hmm. And then um, came the second crack uh, when we understood that uh, the West is, uh, in security and political terms, is imposing uh, unequal or even dangerous uh, uh, schemes uh, on European security order. I was one of the authors of the, or oh, I helped uh, to develop the Gorbachev's um, Common European Home. Then I, I helped to develop many, um, uh, many ideas as to how to bring Europe and Russia together. Uh, but uh, uh, then I am coming to the third element of, uh, of uh, political, economic, and then uh, moral. Uh, uh, in my mind, or for me personally, uh, I decided to um, uh, to finish off my European, great European project with, uh, in which I invested uh, two decades of my life. Uh, when Europe rejected Christianity. Uh, do you remember uh, uh, debates uh, about European constitution in 202? Mm -hmm. And uh, then uh, well, the, the project which was put forward by the group which mm -hmm. was headed by, I think, Giscard d'Estaing, after all things was, hand was uh, handled, and I saw that there was no mention of Christianity. Mm. For me, that was the end of Europe. Mm. Uh, so from uh, that point, uh, I have written it all. Uh, and then uh, we saw, I mean, the second element of uh, the dissociation of Europe and Russia, and that is a new or uh, post-European, as I call it all, if I... Uh, very unkind uh, post-human values which are taking uh, over uh, many European elites you know about this a rejection of history uh, sex uh, 
nation of everything uh, which mm. I did to be human. Uh, so, I mean, uh, but that was uh, very gradually building up. And which and uh, that notion of moral dissociation flared up only in uh, 2010. Uh, in 2010s. Mm -hmm. uh, so, uh, first on security, uh, second, now, yes, by the way, of course, I didn't mention the fact that uh, we saw that uh, the economic relations with Europe were unequal or sometimes unfair. Or, uh, though, of course, we, a lot of people benefit from, uh, from them. Uh, so uh, there was a gradual irritation, growth of irritation of uh, the terms of our economic relations with Europe. Uh, that's why uh, uh, people like myself and uh, uh, doesn't know some of others, uh, at the end of the 2000s, uh, started to argue for uh, gradual uh, change of balance of our trade and economic relations uh, towards uh, the East. That was the, first, the start of the Eastern uh, term. But I, I knew that there would be a, a showdown on security, uh, but I hope it could have been avoided in this roughest storms like we have now. And I knew that, uh, of course, uh, that um, uh, <coughs> we are parting uh, uh, culturally and socially. Uh, but uh, um, uh, that was uh, building up uh, uh, over years. Uh, by uh, the early 2010s, I was absolutely sure that we have parted. Now we have parted mm, mm. In, in a very different way. Mm. Can I can I ask a, a question here, uh, uh, Professor Karak? Urgent uh, uh, One second, please. Of course. I, I, I was wondering if I could ask a question because one of the puzzles I have is that certainly in the West, um, to say it's very straightforwardly, most Westerners, in my experience, have very little knowledge of today's Russia. And I mean, that is absolutely the case. And of course, it affects policy. There's a great misunderstandings about, for example, the scale of the Russian economy. Economy that influenced decisions um, going over many years. We saw the culmination in the sanctions attempts at the start of this year. But it also seems to me that a lot of Russians, an awful lot of Russians, haven't known very much about Europe and have been idealizing Europe for a very long time. Now, how did that happen? Is it because people didn't travel to Europe much through the Soviet times? Could it be, and this is just a question, and I'm just, that Russians' conception of Europe is ultimately a cultural one through access to European culture, to literature, uh, to uh, art, and that this being a literature and art that really is in the past, misinformed Russians about the changes that have been happening in Europe today since the 1960s. Because what you talked about, about the sort of post-human changes, for example, I mean, you could see those kind of processes in Europe starting in the 1960s. But 
Russians don't seem to have been aware of them. So is this is this the case? I mean, do you think that Russians were unaware of this? I mean, is it partly what I was saying that, as I said, it's partly because the Russians have a cultural understanding of Europe, which is perhaps a little out of date sometimes? Just, just this is just a question. Uh, uh, I mean, you are absolutely correct, and I have been fighting with this notion of fighting them, uh, living with this notion uh, for decades. I have been one of the very few in Russia. Uh, I was uh, who uh, partly understood uh, where Europe was going, what was it, but uh, even for myself, uh, Europe was uh, uh, the country of Shakespeare, Sandal, um, uh, Dante, um, uh, great monuments and uh, beautiful architecture of uh, Beethoven. Um, uh, 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 we didn't have uh, an understanding of uh, what, uh, how Europe was developing. Uh, and uh, that was uh, partly to this uh, 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 intellectual uh, unanimity or intellectual uh, thoughtfulness, which was imposed by the communist um, system. Uh, but um, many people in Europe also didn't understand what didn't understand what was happening in Europe too, and uh, that was a part of uh, of our of our problem. We did not understand uh, where Europe or the West was moving. We were moving towards our ideal uh, of what Europe should have been. And uh, that was a that was a, a huge cultural mistake, which is now uh, being corrected very uh, swiftly, but by very harsh uh, ways. As to the um, misunderstanding uh, of uh, in, uh, the West or what is happening in Russia, that is very uh, close uh, to what we have uh, had during the Soviet times. Uh, we were closed intellectually, politically, uh, from uh, Europeans who had very, very narrow um, uh, access of, uh, uh, of communications. And now uh, <laughs> our, Euro our European and uh, Western neighbors are cutting all kind of connections with Russia. Russia is absolutely different from uh, what uh, I, I read in the Western press to the extent that I could I could subscribe to it because it is sometimes impossible to subscribe to Western newspapers or Western media. Uh, so it's it's unbelievable. It's worse than in Soviet times. Now, I may imagine myself uh, having a problem of subscribing to the usual newspapers and magazines uh, which I have been reading for 50 years. Uh, even in Soviet times, I had this, because I was a scholar, I had some kind of access uh, to this press. Of course, there is an internet, but as you know, the internet is um, uh, less and less reliable as a source of information. But nevertheless, I mean, of course, uh, uh, 
and not everything is bad. We are starting to understand what Europe is. But unfortunately, now, instead of ideal picture of what you used to be, now we have a more or less a negative picture. I don't think that uh, people like you, if I understand you well, I don't you, or these were millions and millions of uh, European intellectuals and, uh, and citizens uh, share uh, the views of uh, uh, these strange anti-European and other human enemies. Uh, I'm not blaming or I'm not accusing or I'm not, I'm, uh, it's not a political statement, but uh, the picture of Europe is also becoming distorted here. Yeah. Well, when you speak of this uh, divorce, if you will, between uh, Europe and, and Russia, I was wondering, does it, um, in, in what areas? Because if you look in economics, I guess it's very easy to look at clear indicators. I mean, in, 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 in Europe, there's always this obsession about ridding ourselves of Russian energy, even though it uh, you know, fuels our industries and economies. Uh, but uh, but for Russia, they've always been you know very dependent on you know a lot of Western technologies and industries and uh, you know transportation corridors, uh, the banks, the currencies, payment systems. Uh, now all of this seems to be Russia developing either its own competencies or finding alternative partners in the East. I was just wondering, are there any area other areas where we see uh, Russia and well, Russian, Russian, you're breaking apart to to the extent that actually Europe is losing a lot of the former influence it had in Russia because of this dependency. Well, uh, first of all, um, uh, this process is painful, <laughs> but it is for the better. Uh, absolutely. Uh, uh, yes, uh, 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 we have to. Um, uh, suffer some loss uh, for several years, uh, but we are really now redirecting our uh, um, economic, uh, intellectual, etc., uh, efforts and social efforts uh, towards first ourselves and towards and second towards the East. Uh, the period uh, which I call uh, the P Peter the Great period uh, has finished. Uh, it has uh, given uh, Russia a lot. Uh, uh, there are people in Russia who try to discard uh, the legacy of Peter the Great and of the Europeanization of Russia. I, I do not share their views uh, because uh, without Peter the Great and uh, his educational effort of, uh, of his successors, there wouldn't have been the, one of the greatest literatures and uh, cultures in the world, uh, though. Uh, however, uh, now we are parting, I mean, uh, for a long period of time. Uh, uh, it is sad, uh, but it is necessary for the Russian development too. And uh, I'm traveling now more and more, as many Russians do, around Russia. It's a very comfortable place. Uh, uh, it's uh, in small cities uh, or towns, you have excellent restaurants, uh, uh, clean toilets, by the way. Yeah. 
uh, nice hotels. Uh, and, um, and a few weeks ago, I went to Siberia, and uh, uh, there I saw the uh, unbelievable intellectual uh, curiosity and growth. And so I've been to several places like Novosibirsk and Tomsk, and I saw their industry, which is rapidly growing at last. Uh, so uh, it will be uh, a very hard period for Russia uh, because we are tearing uh, many established uh, links, and uh, uh, including technological. Uh, but I see that uh, the technological genius of Russia is returning back uh, just between, uh, just in front of my eyes. And uh, um, I would say that uh, apart from uh, um, uh, this terrible suffering in Ukraine, uh, death of tens of uh, thousands of soldiers and citizens, uh, the process is going in the, the right direction. But that's history. Mm. Uh, in the right direction. And uh, yeah, eventually, you know, what is happening, what has been happening here socially, is we are getting read uh, uh, from uh, the uh, class of compradors and of, from the class of uh, what uh, uh, people in the press call the fifth column, pro-Western, mm. senseless uh, pro-Western uh, intellectuals and others. Uh, they have immigrated without much oppression. And, uh, intellectually, we are, my, I keep my fingers crossed, we are still the freest country in Europe, I hope. Hmm. And um, Professor Dizon, who used to be uh, working uh, with the uh, Faculty of World Economics and International Affairs at the High School of Economics, which I, I used to head now with a scientific and uh, uh, supervisor, uh, then mm. I give you that our level of discussions is increasing, quality of discussions, and uh, the freedom of discussions. There are some limits, uh, but they are much less obvious than in most of the countries uh, of the world. Um, thank you. You mentioned uh, yeah, the, the, the conflict in, in Ukraine, because uh, to, to a large extent, this has spearheaded a lot of this development of uh, Russia's mm. well, pivot, pivot to the East, if you will, because, uh, mm. uh, well, well, first of all, one, it's, one could argue that uh, uh, when the West toppled the government in Kyiv in 2014, this is when Russia, uh, to a large extent, gave up on this greater Europe initiative and began to really push hard to the east, even though it already had initiatives uh, ahead of this. But I think what's interesting in this crisis was not not just this assumption uh, we had in the West that somehow we're going to turn on sanctions on Russia and the economy would collapse by the weekend. Uh, obviously, none of this worked. But another big shock which mm -hmm. came in the West was hardly any countries outside of NATO uh, joined these sanctions. I mean, uh, from China, uh, India, well, almost all of Asia, Africa, it's, uh, 
and Latin America, uh, no, no, no one joined it. And uh, even more extraordinary, whenever countries like India is being confronted or pressured, uh, they essentially yeah, just br br brush it off and say, well, this is our interest. And uh, also, we don't necessarily see your moral authority here. It's It's, it's been quite um, interesting. And also some of the economic uh, uh, ties and connectivity has intensified very quickly now. Uh, especially Russia, India. This has uh, been a very interesting development. And uh, But now we also see these large institutions which are facilitating cooperation across greater Eurasia, be it you know, SEO, BRICS, uh, all of it. Uh, yeah, instead of walking away from Russia, we see this now. Uh, the membership fees are well, uh, going around the corner. I was just wondering, uh, how, how do you see this development? Is it... Uh, uh, will, will it keep this momentum or because it's been such a turbulent year do you well what do you see for 2023 do you think uh, uh, SEO <coughs> will take more members will will the uh, economic patterns keep uh, or connectivity keep changing um, uh, again I, I not, nobody likes to try to look inside the crystal ball but just the gen general prediction based on how you see things going uh uh, I think, uh, I mean, uh, uh, let's put it this way. You're, you're a world-class um, political philosopher, but you're still European. You're looking at, at the situation from a European point of view, which is natural. I mean, uh, all social sciences, um, uh, whether you we admit that or not, be that economics, sociology, history, uh, politology, are uh, basically nation, good old kind of, um, of, of course, uh, different providers. Uh, as to the direct answer uh, to your question, uh, I'm looking uh, at uh, this uh, story, um, which is uh, unraveling. Uh, very important. Uh, uh, we see uh, the basic uh, crucial uh, change uh, in the direction of world politics, economics, and uh, social affairs, and culture. Uh, for over 500 years, or close to 500 years, uh, in Europe, to which Russia, by the way, Alone, uh, was uh, dominating, uh, not uh, dominating the world militarily, and that was the uh, foundation of the domination. Uh, then politically, economically, culturally, uh, and imposing uh, uh, its uh, rules, norms, or whatsoever. That has that has finished about. Uh, that has started to finish in the uh, 1960s or in the 1970s when Soviet Union had developed uh, a military potential which uh, negated uh, the Western military preponderance, so West started to lose the wars. Uh, but then uh, there was a, a Salto Martale in the 90s, but now again the history is returning. Uh, so what is happening uh, in the world is that uh, we have an 
a continuous earthquake uh, earthquake for about mm. next 15 years, I hope. Mm. Uh, not more, because earthquake is not a uh, state of affairs. Now, uh, uh, we see the emergence or re-emergence of uh, new civilizations and new cultures, uh, new nations, which were neglected uh, in our European, from our European uh, point. Uh, so I am very positive about the world in 25 years, so I would not be able to participate <clears throat> But now for that, and I'm returning back to your question about uh, 2023, we'll have to avoid a, a catastrophic war. And uh, in Ukraine, we are uh, fight, fighting something kind of a side war in this general conflict. It's not, it's, it's not the core. No, of course, it's of your occupies in our minds. I mean, uh, mm. almost all of it. Mm. Uh, an unbelievable uh, amount of uh, time and, and uh, it, it is a side story but it's a crucial side story I mean sometimes side stories make history mm -hmm. uh, but uh, we are moving uh, towards a new world I hope that uh, this conflict in Ukraine now uh, at least and uh, the deterioration of European security system mm. uh, has been happening for about 25 years. And we would uh, uh, somehow come to, a, uh, to an understanding there. Uh, because uh, the other parts of the world are also in turmoil. You mentioned India, but uh, you mentioned India, but, but there's India, Pakistan, I mean, the Arab world, I mean, uh, Africa, which is bursting, et cetera, et cetera. So we, we will have, I mean, for the next 20, yeah, uh, for years for kind of social food, water, and other pro climate problems, we'll have a world which will be exploding. Uh, in the meantime, we, uh, stupid Europeans, are concentrating on the problem of so which are uh, in our immediate vicinity. The Ukrainian problem uh, should and could be solved uh, uh, somehow. Uh, that's a, a separate problem. Uh, but as I said, it's a very, very small but important for us part of a general process. Mm. I mean, can I say that one of the most depressing facts about this crisis, because you talked about the way in which Europe is very absorbed with the Ukrainian crisis, much of what you have been talking about, Professor Karaganov, you will not find discussed at all in any part of the Western media. I mean, very few references there to the BRICS, for example. Hardly any references to the Shanghai Cooperation Organization. Um, very little discussion about, you know, multipolar systems, unipolar systems, the kind of language that 
people, I think, are becoming increasingly accustomed to, not just in Russia, but around the world, a long denial for many years about the rise of China, a long denial for many years about the fact that China and Russia were working together and were forging a relationship with each other, um, a failure to see a lot of what is going on in Africa. This has been a major shock, if I can say here in Britain, that African states are now expressing opinions which go against those of the former imperial heartland, which to a great extent, of course, is still in London. Many people in the West, and I don't think this is just the Western public, I think policymakers still see the world very much on the basis that that system that you described at, your, at the beginning of your last point, the one that the West still has its overriding hegemony, if you like, military, economic, cultural, that that still prevails in some way. And that ultimately, all it needs is for us to exert ourselves a little in one place or another, Ukraine in this particular case, and we will eventually prevail. And this is a very difficult thing, because I think that you've described the change, the transition. But I don't think in European capitals, there's very much understanding at the moment that we are in that process of transition. Uh, uh, we have a very good interview. It's not an interview. Uh, uh, thanks to you. Uh, it is a day. An intellectual discussion which we rarely have uh, with the people from <laughs> the other side of the of the barricade, which is un unbelievable. It's not fantastic. Mm. <laughs> it's simply fantastic. Uh, yes, uh, you are always right. Uh, if uh, being a Russian, I am happy uh, with the state of uh, intellectual affairs. Uh, uh, among our Western counterparts, uh, they are on the losing side of intellectual and political history. Uh, they do not, they do not will to wish to understand what is happening. That was uh, very much like we were in the seventies uh, and eighties. We were Soviets, uh, uh, but uh, now we are living in a much more interdependent world, not economically because uh, globalization is cracking, uh, but uh, in, in the world is open, uh, the global problems are everywhere, uh, so I'm not happy about uh, the, uh, the fact that our Western colleagues uh, refuse uh, to understand the rea reality. Of course, technically, we shall win, but strategically, uh, we could, uh, technically, operationally, we, Russia, uh, the BRICS, uh, Shanghai Cooperation, China, etc. Uh, but strategically, uh, the world in this, uh, in this uncertain future could survive only through common effort. Uh, this juncture, uh, and the ginger, I do not see uh, the ability on the part of the Western elites, which were had been leading uh, for almost for, uh, for uh, uh, 
of five centuries uh, uh, to understand the realities. They're clinging to the old realities and to the old recipes. Uh, that is uh, lamentable, but also dangerous. Hmm. You think this is why <clears throat> there's a resistance towards diplomacy? I'm thinking uh, because, uh, well, to a large extent, the world now is transitioning from a from what we used to have. I guess I would say the unipolar era is already gone, and multipolarity is here. But uh, among some Western elites, you get the impression that, uh, well, also what makes this war in Ukraine quite dangerous is there's this belief that if uh, the West can be victorious in Ukraine, then you can reverse this and uh, restore unipolarity. Uh, I, I would argue that uh, uh, the, the conflict in its own has, uh, uh, well, has only cemented multipolarity because now I think a lot of countries around the world has uh, been taken a bit back by well, the kind of sanctions used and uh, yeah, the economic coercion, the, the, the trust in you know do the dollar and euro, the, the, the banking system, uh, but, uh, but 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 is this a, one of the reasons you think why there's no uh, appetite for diplomacy? I mean, only uh, yesterday Russia suggested you know let's have a ceasefire over you know Orthodox Christmas and. The Americans rejected it, the EU rejected it, and the Kiev rejected it. It was, and even Borrella, the foreign policy chief of the EU, he said, well, then you're going to have to leave all the territories in Ukraine. So conflating ceasefire with capitulation, it's, a, it's a, you know, this whole idea that the negotiations are, is a naughty word now. And this is not just now, but even before the seven years of Minsk agreement, uh, you know, this was a way of resolving it. But I think many people here in the West were afraid that, it would uh, yeah, give way to multipolarity, or do you, uh, how would you analyze this uh, reluctance in the West? Because throughout history, in Cold War, whenever there's a chance of a direct war with Russia, everyone wants to step on the brakes and yeah, walk it back. But now it's just escalation after escalation. Uh, how, how do you how how do you explain this uh, development? Uh uh, that is a result, a result of social and intellectual degradation uh, of uh, many of the Western elites uh, due to uh, 75 years of living uh, in peace and quiet uh, during the first period of stable confrontation, which never challenged in uh, the status quo. Uh, and then uh, due to there was a period of collapse of the Soviet Union when it seemed that uh, all the problems would have been uh, solved. Just, just your uh, political scores. So I could remind you that in the 70s and the 80s, there was despair about um, uh, the uh, degradation of Europe. There were huge problems in the United States. But then all of a sudden, I mean, God sent opportunity. Uh, so the cry there, uh, uh, this infatuation of its success was uh, uh, prolonged. And uh, we have uh, grown uh, a cadre called uh, elites, which absolutely are unable to understand 
how to live in a world of crisis. And they're rejecting this world, crisis and challenges. They're rejecting that. And they're trying to siphon off their rejection into a, say, and the Ukrainian crisis, hoping that that would help. Uh, if Russia uh, doesn't win, uh, quote unquote, over Ukraine, then uh, it would could only postpone uh, uh, the further uh, degradation of the war of the Western system. But Russia would probably win, though I'm happy about uh, the war, uh, the war, the victory, and because uh, that that means. Uh, uh, a lot of suffering uh, for our people in Russia and for our for our people in Ukraine. They will be our problem eventually again, uh, but uh, not most of them. And uh, but uh, this war is mm, or well, special operation uh, is a pain in my heart. Um, uh, yeah, well, before we finish, I was wondering if we could ask a very specific question because people initially focused a lot on this uh, uh, close, uh, well, very uh, close strategic partnership between Russia and China. Now people shifted a bit focus to Russia and India, but um, one, 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 one country which is uh, now seemingly getting very, very close to Russia is. Uh, uh, Iran. I mean, in, during the the Syrian crisis, the or well, conflict or war, mm. uh, Russia and uh, Iran obviously got very close. There was a lot of discussion how this could be a very you know from a conflict specific partnership to you know to draw on this to make it a wider strategic partnership in terms of economic connectivity and well, and, and across the board. I was just wondering how. Uh, yeah, from this north-south corridor, how 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 do you see uh, the partnership with Iran uh, developing? Because this is uh, this is something that uh, well is uh, making many, especially in Washington, uh, shaking their boots. So I'm just uh, curious if you had made any thoughts about this. Mm. Mm. Uh, Russia was a European-oriented uh, country during the last. Uh, Iran, yeah, yeah. Uh, uh, is um. One of the uh, re-emerging civilizations, which I have mentioned uh, when I was uh, talking about uh, this uh, uh, great uh, uh, transition which we are living through, mm. when uh, because of this uh, earthquake which had started about 10, 15 years, 15 years ago, now we see uh, that there are re-emerging civilizations, re-emerging powers, etc. Iran is one of them. And in 10 to 15 years, if there is no nuclear war, now it will be one of the 10 or less most influential countries of the world, like Turkey, like Indonesia. Uh, it is not emerging; it's emerging because Indonesia still have a relatively shallow history. Uh, but um, uh, uh, look, uh, India, obviously the superpower of the future, in one, one way or another, Arabs, 
are becoming uh, more and more independent and more and more self-sufficient. Uh, so there will be a lot of crisis uh, in the world and a lot of shifts. But the, the earthquake, uh, which is uh, happening, is going to bring uh, to us a new reality in about 10 to 15 years. Mm. And Iran will be one of the leaders of this new reality, including it has a very strange um, uh, political system, which is, by the way, a democracy, uh, for better or for worse. Uh, uh, ideologically, it's strange to many of us, but it has one of the most educated societies in the world, including women. And it's only uh, a question when they will uh, they will emerge as a world power. Uh, that's why uh, I have been criticizing my government and my people that that we didn't uh, build the southern corridors, which are now at last being built, uh, because uh, the most important corridors uh, of communications. And not only east-west, uh, which we are building, though, of course, slower than I would love to, uh, but uh, north-south, uh, including through Altai uh, to China and then to the, uh, to, uh, so the uh, ASEAN countries, and, of course, uh, to Iran and then to uh, the Middle East, that, that will be the greater Eurasia, now, which uh, is being built one way or another. And in 10, 15 years, Shanghai organization would be uh, their major uh, source of uh, power uh, in the world, though it is uh, developing, it has been developing rather slowly because of their neglect of many elites, including in Beijing and in Moscow, uh, of the capacities of the organization. And of course, because uh, Beijing and Moscow also competed for the leadership, now it is clear that uh, that uh, process um, is behind us. Uh, so um, uh, if uh, uh, I'm a student or uh, if you have a student, I would invest. Uh, I, would, I would advise to invest them into the Greater Eurasia project. Uh, it is fascinating culturally too, uh, because most of the cultures of the world, except one which has disappeared completely, that's Inca and Aztec, uh, have been uh, in uh, in Eurasia. Um, the, and of course, in northern Africa. Now, what is happening is simply unbelievable. And I'm extremely happy that I have contributed to the process of re emergence of Eurasia, not only in the economic, political, and power center, but of this great cultural, multicolored. Uh, world which we are returning. And of course, uh, for uh, you and me as Europeans, 
that is a bit challenging. But uh, believe me, I mean, when, you, when I teach myself to read Chinese poetry or literature, I understand it. I mean, that uh, they are as great as Dante. Mm. I, I can I can vouch for that. I mean, one of my great moments, well, two of my great moments of revelation were when I, as a student, started to read Indian philosophy. As a Greek, because I'm Greek origin, I had been very much assuming the Greek philosophy was the first great of great philosophies and then I started reading Indian philosophies and I realized that this was emphatically not the case and the other was when I started to become acquainted with Chinese painting which again <laughs> opened up an entirely different understanding of what another culture and non-European culture can do and that was a and that of course opened the way to many things most Europeans most Westerners don't make that transition or haven't made that transition uh, yet. And um, I just wanted, if I could, just to talk about what I think is ultimately the core relationship still in the Eurasian partnership, which is the one between China and Russia. And um, one of the complex things about it is that it's difficult to put a precise point on when it started and how it evolved and the history of this isn't fully developed at the moment we haven't got real academic studies about it we don't know what kind of interactions there were but certainly it seems to me to have had its roots at least going back to the late 1980s and then where do you think this relationship is at the moment this chinese russian relationship because this is the this is the thing that suddenly over the last year or so two years principally since the new administration came to power in washington they suddenly seemed to woken up to the fact that this relationship between the chinese and the russians exists and you read in all these intricate these extraordinary foreign policy magazines that proliferate in America, the importance of trying to break this relationship up, and the suggestion that some made that, and I, you know, I've seen that. I saw an article, and I think it was the national interest, create a war in Ukraine. This is in August 2021. Create a war in Ukraine, defeat Russia there, and then redirect the defeated Russia's policies into an anti-Chinese direction. So, you know, you're getting that kind of thinking now, but where do you actually see the relationship at the moment between the Chinese and the Russians? I mean, <coughs> how close is it really? Or, or I mean, how is it evolving? Uh, for the answer of this question, of course, uh, you, have, uh, you have to be directed to my colleagues and Professor Dizan knows, uh, knows that. Uh, we at the faculty not only have six out of, or well, seven out of uh, eight uh, best foreign policy specialists now uh, in Russia, and maybe two or three uh, them could be included into the world, ten. Uh, but we also have a, a, a few a few best Chinese specialists. 
so um, uh, my um, answer would not be based on my own uh, findings, though of course I have a lot of contacts with the Chinese and I follow them, but on, rather on my uh, the analysis of my uh, colleagues. Uh, for the time being, uh, the Russian-Chinese uh, relationship is on a very safe basis. Uh, it is in the strategic interests of both countries. Uh, and for the time being, and uh, uh, well, first of all, I mean, we don't need a hostile relationship anyway, uh, which was uh, 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 introduced by Mao and uh, Khrushchev because of their ideological differences, which were which was one of the biggest strategic mistakes of the Soviet Union. I don't know how uh, the Chinese assess that. Now, however, now, I mean, they are on a solid basis. I mean, economically, uh, economic relations are growing like mad. Uh, and uh, they will be growing. Now, I mean, the Chinese cars are everywhere in Moscow, not yet in Novosibirsk, and then, by the way, great. I'm thinking about uh, buying a Chinese car if I need to uh, replace my old German limousine. If I continue, of course, actually working with then I need uh, a limousine anywhere. Uh, however, uh, the Chinese are coming, but they're coming very correctly. Uh, uh, they are very well understanding that Russians are uh, a supreme sovereign power. And they couldn't impose something on Russia. Now, I could tell you a few funny stories, but uh, they, uh, about our relationship and about their analysis. Uh, but uh, the, uh, the idea on the Chinese side is that Russia is... Uh, uh, supreme sovereign power and uh, uh, power of warriors, uh, you should be friendly with it first. Mm. Uh, second, uh, uh, interestingly enough, our relationship with China, um, unlike our relationship with Europe, uh, is um, uh, much healthier because it is not uh, a question of ideological or spiritual uh, submission. It's as simple as that. Russians love Russian. Chinese uh, love, uh, uh, love Russian literature. Mm. Uh, we do not understand, but we would like the Chinese. Mm. But they could not impose uh, their views, um, uh, their ideology, or uh, their philosophy on Russia. That's clear. Now, so there will be a balancing act for about 10, 15 years, 20 years. Uh, after that, we shall see. Uh, if Russia uh, survives uh, this uh, period of challenges as a, a strong, sovereign, and relatively powerful nation, uh, it has all uh, chances uh, to become uh, the balancer in the Eurasia. Now, also, uh, we must understand that the Chinese are not seeking at this juncture 
uh, any kind of infiltration uh, towards the north. There are no Jews in Russia. So, uh, to speak. Now, while uh, the southern Siberia is being will be developed, now we shall see uh, uh, by whom. I would love uh, to see it developed not only by Russians, but by Iranians, maybe Europeans, Indians, uh, because it will be the best place in the world. And uh, mm. because the ecology, uh, mm. the climate, etc., etc. Uh, but uh, if Russia does not collapse, which is a slight possibility, but very slight, we shall have a very good relationship with China. Mm -hmm. uh, but it will not be a relationship over submission. It will be not a relationship with uh, our, our senior or junior brother. Mm -hmm. uh, it will be a, a relationship between different friendly civilizations, mm -hmm. which are dependent on each other, uh, because China could not survive long term without resources of Russia, and while we could not uh, survive and prosper uh, without the brains and uh, technological resources. We have brains, but we don't have technological resources of China. I mean, can I just finish that, add to that, that's uh, coming from the capital of a former imperial power. Um, a country that is friends and allies is always, in the end, more secure than a country that has many other countries that it's trying to control. So from a Chinese point of view, I would have thought having a good relationship with an independent Russia is far better than any other kind of relationship with Russia that could possibly exist. I mean, I can't see why the Chinese would want to try and control things in Moscow. It would be a impossible feat for them and it would only cause them problems and it would weaken their overall position and i think they're intelligent enough to understand that um now they have been a, um, a super imperial power uh, during uh, uh, the first two millennia uh, of, uh, of their development they are the oldest living and uh, I, I would say not only civilization, not only civilization, but I would say political civilization in the world. Uh, they have been, you know, they have developed a kind of a uh, thinking that it's better to have friends who pay tributes or to whom we pay tributes rather than to have uh, colonies. And the one, uh, the second is that, of course, but they are now living also in the unbelievably strange circumstances for them because they are secure for, for themselves since, uh, I think, 16th century. A very nice niche where they dominated Benem, most of Benem. Yeah, now they are, of course, uh, up uh, to become uh, the uh, first old power in the world, we'll see how they will develop. And uh, by the way, to uh, help to direct the development, uh, the uh, concept of Greater Eurasia was developed, which um, uh, 
that Professor Dyson uh, contributed to a lot. Yeah. Uh, because it is a concept which also, uh, in one of its aspects, uh, helps China uh, to find its uh, comfortable uh, place, um, but not as a dominant, but as a leading um, uh, power in a group of uh, uh, proud and powerful civilizations, and uh, also um, uh, in the a web of new interconnections. Uh, in our previous history, we thought that only maritime interconnections were dominant. Uh, it is not true anymore, or not be true, because of aviation, because of uh, technology, and now of uh, transportation. I think land uh, communications will be much more important than they used to be. Now, but anyway, uh, the world which we are uh, moving to is a world which I like. Um, the question is how to avoid a, a disaster uh, on the way <laughs> on the way to this great world. Yeah. Uh, Professor Karagnov, uh, thank you so much time so, so much for your time and uh, your insights on yeah the views from Moscow. We really appreciate this and. Uh, uh, yeah, thanks again. And uh, yeah, look forward to being back in Moscow soon. And uh, drop in whenever you come. And it, it was an absolute pleasure uh, to, to chat on the serious and but uh, pleasant matters uh, uh, during the shiny and very frosty Russian dates, about 20, minus 24. <laughs> Take care. Take care. Bye-bye. It was a pleasure Thank to you. meet you, Mr.